Hey, this morning we're back in Acts chapter 19. I wanted us to look at it again. I hope you had some time to reflect on it. I'd like to read uh, part of it again uh, just to give us background. So let's look at verse 8 and we'll read together. Paul entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick. And the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And seven sons of one, Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Or by the power of God, the word grew and prevailed. We'll stop there. I, I, I shared with you a little bit of the, the details of what was kind of driving my thinking, what, what kept surfacing, because as I've wrestled with this passage for two weeks, and I keep wrestling with it, uh, the, this one theme keeps coming out to me. And, and the backdrop of it is the work of Paul. That's what Acts uh, at this point is focusing on what God has been doing through Paul. And I shared with you last week this map that showed you the province, the Roman province of Asia and where Ephesus is. And we talked about how, how significant was Ephesus to this entire area, kind of like the metropolis, uh, the urban metropolis with the... Um, you know, the surrounding bedroom communities and cities. Um, But I express that Luke really gives us a powerful impression here that this is certainly the pinnacle of Paul's ministry. He does spend more time here. Uh, There's dramatic impact in terms of, of the whole province of Asia as well as Ephesus. And, and so, in as much as this is really the, the pinnacle of Paul's ministry, and, and if, we, if we were to look ahead very briefly, we'd realize that 
that after just a brief visit to some of the territories and places that Paul had ministered, he makes his way to Jerusalem. And then from there, basically, he goes to Rome. And that completes, it is there that we have the close of Paul's ministry as we know it. So um, when you look at this prominent uh, kind of a high point, this summit of Paul's ministry, and you look at the events, uh, 8 through 10, I brought attention to the fact that kind of the outcome of that is that, you know, he moves from the synagogue, he takes the disciples and he invests in the disciples and others. And out of that, we have that high point in verse 10, that all Jews and Greeks in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Word of the Lord meaning the message of Jesus Christ. And Paul really invests in telling people about Jesus Christ in this location for two years so that of the bulk of his ministry, two and almost two and a half years, he's really spending it in the synagogue and in this location, grounding people, discipling people in Jesus Christ. And out of that, we're told, the whole province hears, well, that must be the disciples. I mean, I think that's the inference. The people that Paul is investing in, that he's telling about the message, spread that message to the perimeters of this province. Then we have this section in verses uh, 11 uh, through 20. Uh, extraordinary miracles. Indirectly, <laughs> through sweat rags and aprons, people are being healed. Uh, exorcisms are taking place. And uh, even people are naming the name of Jesus Christ to control principalities and powers, evil spirits. Why? Because Paul has proclaimed Jesus. They hear about Jesus. They witness the power of Jesus. They see what Jesus is doing in the lives of others. And so we have the example isolated in verses 13 through 17 of exorcists. And then the specific example is drawn out of the seven sons of Sceva. But exorcists are managing these evil powers trying to by naming the name of Jesus. And we have that expression in verse 13. It says, they command in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, whom Paul proclaims. That's what the expression means, publicly acknowledges and proclaims. And then it's out of that you see that this demon who says, I know Paul, uh, I, you know, I know Jesus, I'm acquainted with Paul, but I don't know you. And so really, the, in, the upshot is, they don't have any power over this demon, do they? In fact, the demon has power over them. Why? Because they are not acquainted with Jesus. They don't know Jesus. Yet they're naming his name to manipulate powers, which is the very heart and soul of magic, for personal ends. Generally, they would be hired. So that was, you know, they're making money by manipulating these supernatural powers as they manifest themselves. And so he makes a mockery, and he actually drives them out, the seven sons, but this gets around and fear falls upon the people. And what's significant is, is that 
We're told Jesus' people also brought forward the evidence of their practices, talismans and things like that. They were still involved in magic. And they brought it all forward. They brought forward their magical books. And as a result, they burned them, which tells us that they confessed these things which were secretive. That's where the power lies. They magnified, it says in verse 17, the name of the Lord Jesus. That's significant. Those words are important. They magnified the name of the Lord Jesus. And in the end, that's the big hooray of that whole account, is what? They magnified Jesus the way Paul started He's magnifying the name of the Lord Jesus. It's in his name that some are co-opting or trying to co-opt this power and use the name of Jesus. But they don't know Jesus and they don't have any power. But the real power is manifest in magnifying Jesus. That's the upshot. And these people are transformed when they get serious about elevating Jesus Christ. And then in the last part of this chapter, we saw, I mentioned it last week, but I want to draw your attention to the fact that uh, in verse 23, not a small disturbance, and it engulfs the whole city. We talked about the fact that the amphitheater, which seated 25,000, would just, you get the impression, it is just jammed, it is rocking. And it is all about the way. And the whole issue is profit. Demetrius, who's probably the head of a guild of silversmiths, they make idols, they make their profit. And boy, there's a real contrast between the nature of their worship, where their God, they're all concerned about because it's the means of their profit, which is idol making. And he says, he he indirectly again tells us about Paul. He has this reputation what? He's, go- he's persuading people everywhere that gods made by hands are not gods. That's what gets this whole thing going. And then it's his associates that are dragged in. He has the courage to want to step up, Paul does, but he's not even allowed, so to speak, into the events that are happening. And it is his associates, in verse 37, the clerk gets up and he says, these men are not sacrilegious, nor blasphemers of Artemis or our gods. I mean, that's the, that's the gist. So what do you deduce from that? I immediately deduce, that is, I draw, I conclude from that, that what they were doing wasn't about attacking Artemis or these other gods. It was about elevating Jesus Christ. They have no time to go around knocking the the others because if they're going to be convicted of anything, it's about elevating, magnifying, putting the emphasis on Jesus Christ. There's no charge against them because that's really what they're all about. So I see something really profound here, and this is what I shared last week, is that the way is more important than the what. The way, of course, is the gospel. It's it's the message of Jesus Christ. It's that life-changing truth 
of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and the entering into a living relationship with the resurrected Christ. Not a historical artifact or figure, but the living power of God in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what the way is about. But we're reminded this week that a lot of times with Machiavelli, as was set out in his work, The Prince, the end justifies the means. That's the method. I mean, we get our eyes on what we want, what we're after, what we think will elevate ourselves in this world, and then, of course, the means, the way, becomes secondary and subordinate. Lance Armstrong's life right now really illustrates the way is more important than the what. You could throw in a Terry Tiger Woods or a Barry Bonds or many others. I thought this week, <clears throat> you probably, I mean, if you're on planet Earth, at least in Western society, you've heard that Oprah Winfrey interviewed Lance Armstrong, uh, seven-time winner of the Tour de France, now stripped of those medals because up until this point, allegations of doping that he denied again and again and again, and now in an interview with Oprah, he confessed that he did dope and that he was lying when he was telling the truth, when he even professed to be. And for many of us, those of us in cycling in particular, that's especially very painful. But I think it's painful for our whole country and for everyone because many of us took pride in the fact that it was an American that triumphed over the Tour de France and did what no man on earth in that great feat of, of energy and power had ever done before. But I thought this week, what if Jesus had interviewed Lance Armstrong instead of Oprah Winfrey? I, if not the first question, maybe the last or the most important question he would have asked would have been this. Lance, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And it's in the little things that we often don't think those big issues are at stake. The world and our soul. But they are incrementally, in little ways. John Ortberg said, if you have honesty, integrity, and character, nothing else matters. If you don't have honesty, integrity, and character, nothing else matters. Lance Armstrong illustrates that. I want us this morning to think about our life, and I also want us to think about ministry. I want you to think about your ministry. Maybe you've never had it put that way, and I know the word ministry is kind of formal. But each and every one of us has a ministry 
if we are followers of Jesus Christ. We don't always think about it, but we need to realize we have a ministry. It's not in Ephesus and in Asia, as was Paul's, but we're with a ministry in our homes right here in Visalia, in our life situations, with friends, with co-workers, really with each and every person that takes notice of us or we have some contact. We potentially have a ministry. And if we're not conscious about it or aware of it or we, we don't give ourselves any place in the plan of God to make a difference in this world, then we're not going to gain anything from what we see here in the way Paul does ministry and the way his disciples do ministry and the way those associates do ministry. And I don't think we're going to get the very nature of what Jesus is doing in our lives if he's just about, you know, fire insurance and eternal destiny alone and what happens after death and not what goes on right now. Because we're a part of what God wants to demonstrate in this world, which is his gospel in Jesus Christ and his power and the reality of that gospel in our lives. I want us to appreciate that if we put Jesus first, God will accomplish great things around us, in us, and through us. Things we never imagined by the way we live for Christ. And that's the tricky part that I see here so clearly in Acts chapter 19. Is that all these things happen and they become typical of what God accomplished in this significant place, in this significant summit of Paul's ministry, but he himself is strategic to the faithful priority of Jesus Christ in his life and ministry but what God does you can't we can see the connections but I don't think Paul could have connected the dots is what I'm trying to say the way is more important than the what there was a father who lost his job he was laid off and times were tough and boy that That's close to home. He had two sons, twins, and he had promised them that for their 10th birthday, he would take them to a nearby amusement park. He kept his promise. And on their birthday, he made arrangements. He withdrew a sum of money from the bank to... You know, bankroll this little trip. And he took his boys to the amusement park as he was approaching that window. And I always think of Disneyland, you know, approaching those, those little kiosks where you pay for your tickets or redeem them or whatever so you can get into the, the amusement park. He saw the sign. General admission, 10 and up. 10 and under, half price. And he realized 
That if he had been there just one day before, just in a matter of hours, he could have saved half of what it was going to cost him at this critical time. But when he got to the window, he said, three general admission, please. And the woman, who happened to be taking tickets, smiled at the boy's and said, how old are you? And one boy chirped, 10, today it's our birthday. Another one said, mine too, we're twins. And she winked at the dad and she whispered to him and she said, you know, if you told me that, uh, I mean, if you just asked for children's tickets, I would never have questioned that your kids were 10. It wouldn't have made any difference. And the dad said, it would have made a difference to them. You know, there are times in our lives that the littlest things that we do that are a matter of honesty, integrity, and character show up in ways. And here's the thing. The father grasped that. I think Paul probably grasped that. You do the little things not because there's going to be a big profitable payoff that you can always quantify. If I do the right thing, everybody's going to praise me. Or if I do the right thing, all these good things are going to happen. We don't always know that. Sometimes for us, the expression of our faith in Jesus Christ is this big struggle of faith just in doing the right thing or doing the selfless thing, or doing the loving thing. And that's where our struggle is. But boy, it would help us if we realized, or if we would include in the calculations that God is going to use that faithfulness in ways that we can't always see that will be greater than we can even imagine. Do you know the rest of the story of these boys, who they grew up to be, what they became? I don't either. <laughs> I don't. I wish I knew. That wouldn't that make for a much better illustration if I could say, yeah, they, because of that, because of that one moment. But I, but I can tell you the story of another man It's really an amazing story. In 1972, a young Egyptian businessman named Farahat, he lost his watch. Now, I don't know if you've ever lost an $11,000 watch, but that would uh, shrivel my cabbage. And he was shocked when there came a knock on his apartment door and there was this, I mean, this, this, this garbage man was dressed in shabby, soiled rags. I mean, he was, he was filthy. And he was, he was working his way through this a building 
where he had picked up trash and found this watch and he was asking people if they had lost a watch. He came to this man's door. He said, did you lose a watch? He said, yes, I did. And he described it. And so this garbage man gave Farahat his $11,000 watch back. And Farahat said, I mean, he asked the man, why didn't you just keep the watch? And the garbage man said, my Christ told me to be honest until death. Now we know that that's what he said because Farahat remembered it. In fact, it was so powerful that he said to the man, whom he, and he didn't know Jesus Christ at the time. And he said to the man, the garbage man, I see Christ in you. I will worship the Christ you are worshiping because of what you've done. And over the next few years, Farahat did just that. And he eventually went to Bible school. And eventually, he and his wife were led back to that garbage man's village which was built basically and I've seen this in at my own son worked in in a, in a school that was right around the dumps of the big city and there was an entire population if you will a city in that dump where people lived off the garbage of others and they were so moved by that God moved them that they began a ministry to the people in that dump ministering to their physical and their spiritual needs. And there was a large cave nearby, and they began holding church in that cavern. And today, 10,000 people meet in that cavern to worship Jesus Christ. It's one of the largest churches in the Middle East. Farahat became known as Father Sama'an. And in 2005, they held a day of prayer for Muslims to turn to Christ. More than 20,000 Arab Christians gathered. A satellite TV broadcast expanded the outreach to millions more. All this, Farahat would tell you, because one garbage man chose to humbly return a watch that would have made him the richest man among his people in his town and village. Put yourself in that garbage man's place or in that father's place. What, what kind of stuff has to go in, on inside of us to realize that the way is more important than the what? If it was the what, then it would be about the, the half price that would be saved on admission. Or it would be about what you could do with that watch. And sometimes if we could see the impact, wow, what a powerful incentive and motivation it would be. And we can't. It becomes a precious sacrifice that we make unto the Lord and put into his hands. But what we see here is through that ministry, and that's ministry, that's what I'm trying to help us appreciate. 
That's Jesus living through those people. That's Jesus living through you and me. And when we put it into his hands, God does amazing things, even as we see here in 19 of Acts. But it, it, it begins with the way we live, and that's what I see manifest in Paul's ministry. The way we, we live, the way is more important than the what. The way changes the way we think of people and think of power and think of profit. In fact, what I'd like to impress upon us as we just touch on these things very quickly, is that when we think of people, I want us to understand that you are the most important person. Or if I could, you are the most important people. <laughs> because the gospel begins with you. If it isn't real in you, then you aren't going to have any ministry anywhere else. If it wasn't real with Paul, would he have invested two years? Would he have thought, this is worth my time? If you yourself aren't convinced that Jesus makes a difference, I mean, if you aren't experiencing the reality of life in Jesus Christ on a day-to-day -day basis with the constellation of its blessings and its reality, then you're not going to invest in others. But that's very much a part of that motivation. Very central I think all to just bring this down to my personal experience, because now more of my adult life has been involved in some sense with, with you know, what we would formally call ministry, inside and out of the church, sometimes in the classroom, sometimes in, in uh, administration and church ministry. And now uh, about 22, almost 23 years in the pastorate, and I've talked to, I've trained pastors, I've met with a lot of pastors, I see a lot of pastors that just come out of seminary, every pastor in his heart of hearts, and I've heard this, but I know it in my own personal experience. When we begin, we're asking a really simple question like this, where do I begin, what do I do? What is the what of growing a successful church? And for myself, I mean, there's a lot of how-tos and stuff, but for myself, it's about the integrity, the honesty, the integrity and character of my relationship with Jesus Christ at home. It's got to be real at home. Oh, Shelly could tell you stories. I, I don't get me wrong. But that's, that's the touchstone of my life. Do I mess up? Do I blow it? Do I sometimes get angry? Am I sometimes selfish? Are there things that I would be embarrassed? Absolutely. But what draws me, it isn't about covering that up. It's about drawing me back to what really matters. So I do the right thing. I apologize to Shelley. I tell her that was wrong and I, I fix it. And that's, that's kind of the process of changing in my life. I'm trying to boil this down at the simplest level. The same thing could be said of friendships, work relationships, in whatever sphere we are. It begins with the power of God in you. Could, do we want a church that proclaims the gospel, but that gospel isn't real in the people's lives? It doesn't, make we don't, it doesn't mean we don't make mistakes or sin because sin is very much a part of the gospel. That's what the cross is about. But we handle it in a different way. We handle it in Jesus Christ. That makes a big difference. You know, lately there's, 
And I, I myself am, am, am really, it just weighs on my heart. It just seems like even in the last, it, like a tsunami in the last decade, last 15 years or so. The, I mean, if you, if you weigh these things through the media and discourse, books that are being written during this period, telecasts, things on radio, music and everything else, we are becoming more and more anti-theistic, that is anti-God, anti-divine, anti-supernatural, totally materialistic. There's just no place in the marketplace for God. And in that, we hear a lot about people leaving the church. And it is true. I think they are. And why shouldn't they? You tell me. Why shouldn't people say, I've had it with this whole church thing? Why do you think they've had it? Why do you think they're just turning away? I think it's because they don't see the power of God in the church. And where would they see his power? In a changed life. In a life that won't bend to anything but God. And when they do, they realize it, they correct it, and they go on walking in the way. I mean, isn't that the power? That's what influences me, is when I see a person that's genuinely real about their relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what inspires and motivates me. That's why we have inspiring Christ-likeness up here. It's not about one figure or a few. It's about all of us. Just think what God could do. And that's the importance also of the power. What is, what is when they co-opt the name Jesus, it's because Paul's proclaiming him. And when they end up magnifying Jesus Christ in this indirect way because this real power showed itself over those who had no power, they ran to the power. They started elevating the power. But we don't elevate the power, the real power, Jesus Christ, to manipulate it for our own ends, although a lot in church do that in very subtle ways that they would never think of as magic. But it's interesting, when Paul writes about power, and I had a whole bunch of verses, but just a couple of verses, when he writes to and from Corinth, it's interesting, the emphasis on power. But these two I just want to share with, in the interest of time. 2 Corinthians 12.9. My power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That's what God said to Paul. That's what he was operating under, even in these experiences. My power is made perfect in your weakness, Paul. And we just can't really get our heads around that. That we unleash God's power by submitting and acknowledging his power. Not by trying to move his power our way or the way we think God ought to be doing it but truly recognizing him as God and elevating his name through the elevation of Jesus Christ. 
That's the unleashing of the power. He says we have these, we have this treasure in clay jars. So that the extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. In Ephesians chapter uh, 6, 10, and it's interesting, in Ephesians, when we think of all this, you know, Ephesus being the magic capital, in chapter 2, he talks about how we used to be enslaved to the principalities and powers when we were sons of disobedience, but by the grace of God, everything's changed. Verse 4 and following. And then when he gets to chapter 6, verse 10, he says, finally. So I want to emphasize this. And he's going to go on to talk about spiritual warfare. That's where he says, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. And we're wise to the wiles and tricks, the philosophies and schemes of the devil. Because we don't live in a world that doesn't believe in these things, but recognizes it, but knows just as is illustrated in chapter 9, demons and those powers have no power over us, not because we name the name of Jesus, but because we are in him and in his power. And what does Paul say in verse 10? He says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. A lot of this has to do then with realizing that God's power that is the very person of God is available to us in all circumstances. I mean, if, if he's out of mind, he's out of, out of sight, out of mind, you know, we're not going to draw on his power. We're not even going to think it relevant. Or if we're just steaming along in our own strength and power, doing our own thing. We're not going to think about. And how do we actually unleash this power? Through submission. Through acknowledgement that he's God. In Jesus Christ. That gives us our purpose and focus. This is a silly illustration. But you know, I've just noticed in my life more. And I'm excited about this. I wish I could say I was like 20. And I figured this out. And if you figure it out a little sooner, that's exciting too. But it comes through this awareness. I just find I'm praying about all the little things in my life. The other day, I got home from work. And even after all these years of marriage, I still, I don't want to find Shelly on the phone when I get home. I like to talk to her for a few minutes. There are some things that I have. Isn't it funny, uh, men, or this man? But anyway, so she's on the phone, and I'm kind of milling around. I feel like a bee around a flower, and I'm just buzzing, you know? I don't want to go too far because I'm waiting for her to get off the phone. I'm hoping she'll get off the phone. And there is a little, the old selfish, you know, the human nature is something we live with. And so it's, you know, you know what? When I get home, she shouldn't have, be on the phone, yada, yada, th- those kinds of thoughts. And then all of a sudden I thought, you know what? And I just prayed about it. Lord, maybe this phone call is more important than me. And if you want if, if, if what I am concerned about is so important, then you'll just work that all. I mean, I just put the whole thing. What a difference 
came over me. And you know what? When it comes to those miracles that are so eye-catching or those fireworks of faith, I think they're going to happen in the same way in our lives when we do the little things right. And then when it comes to the prophet, you're the prophet. That's what this whole thing was about. And it really sets up some beautiful contrasts between Jesus and Artemis and the way followers of Artemis behave and the way followers of Jesus behave. But in that, you see such a profound difference that you see the reality, the integrity, the authenticity, the power of God. I don't know what else we've got, folks. That's where it starts. And God does the rest. But that can be a great incentive for us. And I know you know this in your lives, but I thought it was exciting to see it in Acts and see some of the profound things God did because Paul and those with him and those he won to Christ, for them the way was more important than the what. And that gave God the freedom to do great things. That saying I shared last week, When we see that everything is in God's hands, it's a lot easier for us to put everything in the hands of God. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us as we close. If God has spoken to your heart in some way, either on this topic or something related, maybe you want to pray with someone you're interceding for, put the what in his hands. That's the way. You come. I'll be down here. Pastoral staff, elders, their wives. We want to pray with you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the new life that grows and blossoms and bears great fruit as we just walk with you, trusting you. And we grow wiser but help us to keep our eyes Lord on those wonderful things that you want to do through our simple faith trust and obedience and help us to enjoy that in a way that adds blessing